I generally will say exactly what I think and whether people like to hear it or not, and we'll straight up lay it out. It does sometimes frustrate a few folks here and there, but I really personally don't care because I think it's important that we get the conversation out. I think it's important for people to sort of engage in the process and not stay quiet about how they feel about things. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. Attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. I have on the show today State Representative Tana Sanchez. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. You were first elected to the state legislature in 2016. Did you have any prior elected experience? And if not, what got you to join the race to be a state representative? I did not actually have elected experience prior to that. And what happened was that then Senator uh, Chip Shields decided to retire from the legislature. Then Representative Lou Frederick decided to go for the Senate seat and his seat was open. And literally that evening when all of that sort of occurred, I started getting some text messages and someone I know said, hey, here's what's happened. You should consider. And literally my response to his text message was, wah, ha, 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 you know, in a text message, very long. <laughs> and he responds with, no, I'm not kidding. You should really consider this. There has never been a Native person in the Oregon legislature, at least we thought at that time. And we don't have the representation that we need as Indigenous people here in the state. And I thought about that for a long time. And we went back and forth with a bunch of text messages. And I told him, you know, I'll think about it. And I spent the weekend thinking about it and thought, you know, I'm a social worker. I have a master's degree in social work. I am the director of family services at Native American Youth and Family Center. And I work with people on the ground all the time. And I know what the laws that we make in this state do to the people on the ground. And I know what the, the resource lacks are and what some of the things that are huge frustrations for people are from that perspective. And I just thought to myself, you know what, why not make a shift, make a change, figure out what we can do and make it better. And there is no reason why my voice shouldn't be there. And I look at the legislature from the perspective of the Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy, which is the original design, and really thinking about we should be people who have integrity and who are willing to tell the truth and say it straight up and be clear about it. So I thought it is really important that that come to the Oregon legislature because we have been a very, very white state for a very, very long time. It needs to shift. 
how do you feel about the kind of impact you've been able to have moving across that divide into uh, now you're a policymaker, you're an elected official? I think that my voice has been very important in the work that's being done in the legislature. I feel like I, I have a perspective that, that other folks don't necessarily have. I think I, I bring a voice that is just not been heard there before. So I think, I think it's really, really important. Um, you know, and as I said, I sort of like that was my knee jerk reaction that wah ha 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 ha. And literally took me just a few more minutes past that moment in time to sort of think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's important. You ran to have a voice from a very marginalized perspective in our state. Are you seeing the legislature come to represent more perspectives than it has in the past? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I came in with Janelle Bynum, Hernandez, Meek, Alonso Leon. Like there were five of us, five people of color in the House. Right? Out of 60, and, which is uh, that's a that's a high percentage for a, right. a, a House of 60 members. Right. And now Salinas was added to that. Well, there are 12 of us in the House and the Senate together. Of the 90 legislators in the state of Oregon, there are 12 people of color. That's the largest amount of people of color that's ever been there that I know of. That probably is about just still short of the population-wide percentage of people of color. This does get me into a question that I always want to ask state legislators or any kind of elected officials. You are nominally my representative, right? You represent District 43, and there's about 65 or 70,000 constituents in this district. How do you conceive of your role representing us? What is behind your decision-making when you go to propose bills or vote on bills, vote on amendments, do committee work. How much are you thinking about your constituents and how much are you thinking about other considerations? Well, I have to think of North and Northeast. Well, let me just say, first of all, I was pretty much born and raised here and I've lived in my district the majority of my life. I do recognize this very distinctly as what happens in my district. Right. It's home to you. It's not just the place you live right exactly, now. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's a big thing for sure. Yeah, it is. A, and it's actually very important, I think. But I also have to recognize and, I, you know, part of the conversation to have all the time. We don't just make rules or laws or whatever for our districts. We make them for the entire state of Oregon. So it's thinking on a broader perspective, but also recognizing while I think building housing is really important, I know that my constituents are struggling with all of the apartment complexes that are going up. While economic development is very important, I know that my constituents are also concerned about, you know, the small businesses that we have in the district and larger businesses that may be polluters, you know, very close by. I'm paying attention to um, the diesel, you know, situation, diesel fuel going up and down the I-5 corridor. Like how hard is that on my constituents and their children breathing that air? And how do we deal with that? I very much think about it on a very local level, but also, you know, again, having to having to broaden that and recognize that, okay, are we all going to be okay with the Rose Quarter redevelopment? Maybe not. And the next question is going to be later on. I have that with PPS. Where are you going to put Harriet Tubman? Seems like you're saying, you know, you when you ran to bring the Native American perspective to the legislature where it had been excluded and you're looking at the bigger statewide picture as opposed to your constituency. What's your experience with other legislators? Is your viewpoint kind of the norm or are most legislators much more constituent focused? Depends. It depends on, on the, uh, the area. Oftentimes I will give you an example. 
I'm, uh, you know, I struggle with alcohol being a very large part of our economy. And yet there are legislators who will fight tooth and nail for their, their constituents who are small breweries and all of those kinds of things and really trying to push their, you know, their need to have those businesses. And I recognize I have those, some of those folks too, the wine shops and, and things of that nature. And I get that and I can appreciate that and really want them to do well as a small business. But what I don't want is for us to have an overwhelming amount of, of folks who are struggling with addictions as well and, and alcohol being the primary focus in there. It's always a contradictory situation that we've not invested here and yet we need to invest here. If I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that if there's a conflict between, say, what your conscience or your political instincts tell you is good for the people of Oregon and what your constituents may want or directly benefit from, you're going to go with your conscience on that as opposed to your constituents. And how do you balance that? I mean, it, you're, you're, you're saying not really, but like, I don't want to I don't want to put words in your mouth. But how do you make that balance between the sort of the good of the whole state versus the interest of your of your constituents? That's, I know that's a tricky question. It is a tricky question. And, you know, I am not by any stretch of the imagination going to bar somebody from having that type of business. And when we've had conversations with constituents who wanted to have a food cart and actually do wine out of a food cart or beer or something out of a food cart, we're like, okay, well, let's figure out what the law is and what we can, what we can do to help you get that all figured out. Turns out, of course, we couldn't do it because it has to be a stationary place, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not, I'm not going to tell them, no, we're not going to help you because I don't like alcohol or whatever. Like, that's not what we do. I don't see any point in doing that type of thing. Like, I want to help people. If they want to develop a small business, however they want to do it, that's going to be important to make happen. We will follow the law and we'll do the best we can there. And, you know, I may not be the one to champion the, the law that says you can have beer and wine out of a food cart. But, you know, I'll certainly make sure that constituents can, can have any resource they need to, to get that figured out if they want to. So what you're talking about is constituent services, which is kind of right. a, a, a hidden piece of the job of the legislator. You know, I would say that the common perception of what members of Congress and state legislatures do is they vote on things. They vote mm -hmm. yes or no, and they, they propose bills. But the, there's a big side, which is you're there to help your constituents navigate the system of governance. What else do you do that you think is relatively invisible to the world that you would like the population to know is part of the job of their state legislature? Well, I will tell you, early in the pandemic, as things shut down a great deal, of course, uh, we all, of course, talked about the unemployment issue, unemployment, the, the insurance, the, the system there that was just wrought with horrible problems. People called our offices, sent emails to our offices, and we sent every single one of those in. We would, you know, work with unemployment over and over again to try to get past barriers and issues. And I have pictures, text messages sent from constituents showing me their checks that they finally got. That's an amazing thing. I've worked with folks who had struggles with, I think it was DMV or vital statistics, trying to get their things taken care of for their kids and families. We're doing all kinds of things that, that just to help people on the ground, who, you know, people who are struggling with child welfare issues. Like they're asking questions. What's going on here? How come I can't get a straight answer? Why did they say this to me? Those types of things. We're doing, we do a lot of things like that. We do a lot of things very closely with the different systems here to just try to get it figured out. Because if it doesn't make sense to me, I can't imagine why it would make sense to, to any average human being. This is the world we live in, for God's sakes. Things should make sense and things should be done logically. And if they're not, 
if they can't get it done, why, why wouldn't I push to try to make that happen for folks? You're a social worker. And it sounds like part of the job of being a state legislator is partially helping being a social worker for your constituents to navigate the system of governance that is often confusing and may be completely uh, invisible to them in, in general. There might be things that people qualify for that they don't even know about. Is that across the board in the state legislature? Do you find that that is an attitude that legislators have? I know I don't want to put you in a position of speaking for other people, but do you see this kind of level of constituent service happening as part of the way the state legislature does its business? Or is that, again, kind of member by member? You know, I'm not positive, but I will tell you, as of March of 2020, it was extremely apparent. It was extremely apparent in every office and every meeting that we had over and over again with the, with the governor's office, with OHA, all of those folks, you could clearly see that legislators were frustrated with different issues and were pushing to get things taken care of and pushes, pushing to get their constituents' needs met. So it was not just my office because I'm a social worker. It was a lot of people's offices. And I can't guarantee, of course, that it, everyone did that. But I know that many times when somebody, I would get an email from another legislator saying, hey, this one's yours. I do think that one of the things about the onset of the pandemic, from my perspective as a political science professor, is that it made people far more aware of how many government representatives there were. All these health officials, county officials that people that are on the ballot that we nominally know about because we fill out a circle on the ballot. But Government is largely invisible to many Americans, except for at the marquee level of president and Congress and Supreme Court. The pandemic did seem to bring greater visibility to those of you who are closer to home, more on the ground. Have you seen during the time of the pandemic the way that legislative business gets done, transforming as a result of the the new situation, the new attention, the new level of urgency? Uh, Or is the legislature as it moves through proposing and investigating and, and passing bills, is it similar to the way it was in 2017 when you first joined the House? Well, I will say that I have been talking about civics education for a very, very long time, even prior to going into the legislature. And it has been far more apparent that civics education has to happen on a larger level, at a younger level. That is the reality of the situation. They really do need to have a clearer understanding of how it all works. And they don't. People don't understand county does this, city does this, right? Or metro does that. They don't understand where, where all of the powers sit and how important they are to their lives in particular. Because we've had, I've had many conversations with constituents about, yeah, that's not something that we can take care of here. It has to happen over here, right? And we'll help you walk through that, but it's not something we can do. How problematic is that lack of civic education for good government? Like, what are the downsides to having a public that is not well-versed in our system of government? From my perspective, it's that you don't get your voice heard, that the issues and struggles that you have, whatever they are, you're not being able to get them to a place where it makes sense to, for someone to hear them to fix things if there are problems. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about.
what is something that used to outrage you that no longer does? Uh, and most importantly, why the change? And if there are things that still outrage you or newly do, we can talk about those as well. But what's something that some, a form of outrage that you used to have that you are past for whatever reason? Well, it used to uh, outrage me, I guess you could outrage, that it took so long to get a particular type of bill passed that the bill died for this, that, or the other reason. And whether you know the true reason is neither here nor there to a degree, but that the, the fact that you may have been really advocating for a certain thing and it didn't go. And until you are in the depths of the legislature, you just don't know why. People don't understand why. And this has been my one of my, another frustration or fury or whatever, is poor people don't have lobbyists. People on right. the ground, your average folks don't have lobbyists. They have people who might care one way or the other, but they don't have lobbyists. And we don't have someone pushing the agenda of, of the, the needs. I mean, right now, we, of course, have just made some significant investments in behavioral health and addictions. And we've done that because things occurred that made that necessary, right? But we haven't done that before because we choose to ignore those folks, right? Or, you know, kind of walk past and say, well, that's a human failing in some way. Their mental health or addiction or the fact that they're homeless is a human failing. We want to pretend like that's not happening because that's really hard. People don't like to deal with that. And yet we have some responsibility in there to deal with it and to do something different. Um, and I will say just again, I have no problem with the straight out. We have disinvested so much in the human aspect of things and people's mental health. And if the pandemic has done nothing for us, it has shown that, that huge bright light on the fact that that disinvestment is going to come back to haunt us in the end. What is it like from the inside trying to build back these investments in the human side of things, knowing what you now know, which is it's frustrating and difficult and poor people don't have lobbyists. How do you now appreciating the slowness and the difficulty of the process, how do you get up every morning and go and keep at this very difficult, long slog of work to try to build a better future for our state? Um, because I really, I really care about the truth and I really care about transparency. And I don't mind saying things out loud, whether people like it or not. I mean, that, that really truly is it. Because if I get the opportunity to say it out loud and to remind folks of what's, what, you know, right from wrong in, in a sense, or tell them straight up, like, you know, there was, let me just say a moment in time where someone was saying, oh, well, all of these anecdotal things about addiction. I mean, that's not, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about anecdotal? There are facts, there are statistics, there's data. And um, I actually have been trained in this field to know and understand that there's, there's issues here. This is not anecdotal. This is real. And, you know, addiction is a huge thing that is killing our state. And we have to face that fact. But we cannot just pretend it doesn't exist anymore or continue to hide the relatives or the friends that might have an addiction problem and pretend that's okay, you know, or the mental health issue. We just can't continue to do it that way. Right. Well, you know, you bring up anecdotal and uh, that reminds me of, you know, narratives and the narratives that dominate our politics aren't necessarily fact-based. They're not necessarily based on a hard look at the true data. How do you combat that? I mean, I, one way is by telling the truth, I hear you saying, but like, how, how, do, you, how do you get people who don't want to listen to the facts to listen to the facts? That's this hard. might be the hardest question I've ever asked a guest. <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard because, you know, sometimes 
I honestly, many, many times I've sort of had to sit down with people and really just be my best social worker self and, and talk to people about, you know, I actually don't think that's true. And this is why I don't think it's true. And here's what we know. Yeah, that person may have said that, but we have to question whether or not they have all of the facts and whether or not they're being completely honest. And I have called people a liar straight up in front of God and everybody because it, that what, it, what you're saying is not true. And when you say people, do you mean fellow legislators who are well, working against what you're working for? Well, let me just say the kind conversation is generally with constituents or other, other people's constituents or people who are concerned about an issue. I, I have the harder conversations are oftentimes with some other legislators who, who might say a thing or, 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 or do a thing that, that just, in my opinion, inappropriate or disrespectful or whatever. And, and you know, I have no, as I said, oh, I will call people on stuff if I can. If the opportunity arises, you betcha. I will, I will just say straight up, like, that was not okay. Was not a good thing for you to do that. And I'm going to fight you on it. One of the things that we as Americans have been seeing over the last five years since Donald Trump was elected, you were elected in the same year that he was yes. elected, is what seems to be a rapid erosion of civility and an increasing bunker mentality. Is that impacting the legislature as strongly as we sort of see it in places like Facebook fights and media battles and, you know, CNN panels? Is there a level of civility and collegiality that is kind of hidden from our view that still goes on? Or is that eroding as well? You know, I don't think that it is eroding. I think that there is, generally speaking, there's been a few moments here and there, but I don't think that those moments were unheard of prior to five years ago. And I don't think, well, let me just say, short of Nierman, um, there was not anything that I saw that was that may have put us in that sort of place. You know, folks have come to the Capitol many, many times in the past prior to uh, prior to me being elected, prior to uh, to Donald Trump, loaded to loaded with guns. I mean, literally, I, I I went to the Capitol one time, and there was a you know the gun rally out front, and there's a guy in a wheelchair with two guns strapped across his chest and a pistol. I'm like, whoa, dude! <laughs> like that kind of that kind of showman, you know, like let's you know bold and whatever. That's been out there for a while. You know, do they come up to us and say anything? No, not you know, not that I've been aware of. Um, have they done that in the past because it was an intimidation factor? Yes, in fact, they have. But um, the boldness of December 21, 2020 was something completely different for us. And then as we rolled into January 6th, like that, those are different. Those are different times. Do, do those feel like, okay, those are, those were terrible events that are exceptions to the general interaction between legislators and the public, or do you feel like that we have to be concerned that that kind of potential violence, anger, um, sort of shows of force that are different than in the past? Is this something that we are going to need to get used to in your opinion, or can we say that maybe the high water mark has been hit? I know this is asking you for a prediction about an uncertain future, but what's what's your sense of how you feel about the future of political civility? Well, I'm concerned for it. That's for sure. <laughs> I am concerned for it. I want us to be prepared just in case. Like, I don't want people to feel like or speculate that we're, you know, that we are at the high watermark. I think there's always potential for, for, uh, for more difficulties. Let's just put it that way. But 
yeah, it could it, it could go either way. I think it's going to be important to be prepared and to and to for have people to really have people really think about how they manage their awareness of what's going on and how we're watching. I think it's important for people to sort of engage in the process and not stay quiet about how they feel about things. And I have I've told a lot of people this. I think it's there may be things that you don't like and and want to say something about which is fine and wonderful and we want to hear that. But it's also important for people to know that you do like some things or that you do think some things are important because very often the, those examples are laid out on the floor of the house, right? Uh, by folks who, who don't want things to happen that are really important. Well, I've got no good messages about that. Oh, there was only one message for blah, 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 or two messages for, well, there were 300 against, you know, that conversation happened in, in the redistricting situation over and over again. But the fact of the matter is, is that we know that there are a lot of folks who were very excited about those kinds of things, very excited about some of the laws that we put in place, very excited about some of the efforts and investments that we're making in, in things like behavioral health or, or um, the 988, you know, phone line or the, you know, the expansion of the CAHOOTS model throughout the state. Like we know that people are excited about that and that are, that are looking forward to us being, being able to make those things happen. Right. So you're so you're saying, you know, let's let's have positive feedback be as uh, much of a part of our political discourse as negative feedback. Exactly. Exactly. And then also recognize the fact that I can appreciate your negative feedback and we will do the best we can, but we can't always fix everything. And, you know, I've, I've had folks in the past tell me, you know, I don't like this law because blah, 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 blah. And I, I have to really sit back and explain to them, OK, this law is in place because and your situation is an anomaly. It's a sad reality, but it's an anomaly. Well, I'm not going to be able to change that necessarily. If there's tweaks to a law, we might be able to do that, but not necessarily going to be able to change some of the laws the way everyone wants them. Right. People are going to be unhappy. Uh, that's the nature of, of policymaking. Some, some people are going to be on the losing side. Some people are going to be those anomalies. Some people are just going to not see the ways in which policies are beneficial to them. So it is, you know, if, if there were more, it doesn't have to be that it's up, for, up with people positivity all the time, but some balance between, okay, I'm angry about this that's not being done or that is being done that I don't like, but also I like these things so that we can see that our political system is responding as well as also has, has room, to, room to move and room to grow and improvements to make. Absolutely. Well, that's good. I, I, that is a great final word because I, I do often find myself looking for ways to send at least some positive message to my listeners and to the public at large that politics, it's rough and, and it's slow and it's frustrating and there are mistakes that are made, but to get a sense that, okay, there are good hearted people working hard and there are good things that are happening and we can be annoyed and angered even, but we don't have to be despairing that it's right. all irretrievably broken. Right. Absolutely. It is not. Yeah, it's not broken. It may have a few dinks in it here and there. <laughs> but we, you know, what can we do? What, we don't just throw it away because it's, it doesn't look good anymore. Right. Let's try to fix it and figure out how we do it better.